making a no-budget indie film is like going to war. But you're not General MacArthur storming the beaches with a force of 100,000 soldiers. Instead, you're more like a small squad of Viet Cong guerrillas behind enemy lines, trying to complete an impossible mission using dial and your wits. It's risky, difficult, and dangerous. I can swear by it. I've been there. So, welcome to the inaugural episode of the Grindhouse Podcast. My name is Dave. I'm here with my partner in crime, Matt. How's it going? And today, we're going to be talking about Mandy, directed by Panos Cosmatos, starring Nicolas Cage and Linus Roche. Before we jump too far into Mandy, uh, just a little background since this is our first episode. Uh, I'm I'm a filmmaker. I've been in the industry for 10 years working primarily in indie film. That's right. And I do uh, bronze uh, sculpture out of Texas and I've uh, been doing that for about 15 years now. So I am uh, not qualified at all to uh, critique <laughs> film. But uh, Well, what's funny though, but we, you know, one of my first, one of the first projects that I even worked on, you were, you were a part of, uh, oh, if you remember yeah. way, way back 10, 10 years ago or so. We did this, um, you know, the, in Austin, Texas, where, where Matt lives now and I live for a long time, they used to do these 24-hour and 48-hour film fest. And when I was first getting into film, that was my only real avenue into it. So Matt and I and some friends sat down together and, and put together this story. And Matt was my first leading man, starring as a psycho killer. That's right. And in a cool little little short you know what is it two minutes or three minutes it was very short yeah yeah <laughs> five five minutes i think don't, don't yeah but don't sell yourself short was... you did five minutes buddy you you did it <laughs> <laughs> well the but the funny thing is is it's it's thinking back of projects that we did together way back then and then looking at projects that i make now i'm sure for you it's the same way some of the art that you make now there's a lot of the same sort of indie sensibilities that that have existed even all the way back even further when we were doing DIY punk rock bands. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, so hopefully we can bring a little bit of that independent spirit to our view of some of these projects, and and that's what we're going to be looking through the lens at for Mandy. Somehow I got it in my mind that this was a film where uh, Nicolas Cage uh, fights kids. I think I saw some other trailer and I got him <laughs> confused, and uh, so I would see right. this this bloody picture of Nicolas Cage with a ch- you know chainsaw. And I thought uh, he was either fighting children or saving children or something. I, I thought it was one of those uh, quirky uh, comedy horrors. And I said, you know, I, I could take my time getting to that. But Yeah. Well, and and I, I'm often kind of late to the game when it comes to these more surreal horror films. Recently, I started shooting a film that took a lot of uh, lighting inspiration from Mandy. And so because of that, I kind of went back to it and, and, and watched it. Um, maybe a little bit of a return to form for Nicolas Cage, at least in the eyes of the public. Oh, yeah. You know, because he, he is the kind of king of crazy. Uh, you know, he's, he's the guy that uh, he, he, he's I think that's what why he works so well is because he he knows he so often in these roles, he does not look cool. He's he's right. he's uh, you know, he's, he's he's losing his mind. He's acting weird. And, uh, 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 you know, uh, adaptation comes to mind. I mean, he looked like uh, mm-hmm. the most tired loser you've ever seen but uh you know he, he doesn't you know and sometimes he does look cool you know you've got movies like uh, yeah. wild at heart where he is right. probably the coolest guy i've ever seen in my life and uh you know this snakeskin jacket uh yeah exactly iconic, but uh yeah he can do it all and he's not afraid to and that's why he works so well anyone who hasn't seen mandy yet there will be some spoilers i imagine as we go through it i don't want to go beat by beat through the story but i definitely want to lay it out and then we can sort of give our opinion on it. So Mandy's a story about a couple who live in a very serene sort of wooded area 
and they they unfortunately come across Jeremiah Sand, the cult leader who's played by Linus Roish, that wants to take Mandy and have her for his own. The start of the film really sets the tone right off the bat like what you're gonna be watching into. You know, from the from the King Crimson's song straight off the bat of Starless to the lighting technique and even the, the sort of the dead look of Nicolas Cage as you see him go through the motions of his job as a lumberjack, you know, just going to his days, looking forward to nothing else but to coming home to his love. It it does and it doesn't. I I mean the films for, for me it's um it's kind of a it's a few different films like it cuz it cuz it starts out with them out in the woods like you're talking about and it's this man mm-hmm. and his wife living a simple life, you know. But when I think of Mandy, I'm taken back to like reading like Conan the Barbarian comics mm. when I was 13, yeah. you know. I mean, it's because it, it, because I, like through the use of psychedelic drugs and, and different plot vehicles like that, the film transforms into this like crazy barbarian quest, you know, yeah. <laughs> like axes yeah, yeah, and magic and like. But it but it but at the same time it isn't. It's very clever. Very yeah. Very. Once I realized what they were doing, uh, I had a lot of fun with this one. Well, I, I remember the very first time I put it on. You know, my girlfriend and I were watching it, and it was. It starts a bit slow, and and I remember thinking like, oh, okay, I don't, I don't really see the hype. It's cool. It looks cool, but it, it's, it was definitely starting. It's slow. The the good first two, I don't know, fifteen twenty minutes of it, a lot of dialogue. Yeah. And um, and some interesting lighting choices, which we can get into a little bit more. But um, once you get once you once it starts to get going, and you start to realize what you're in for. Then you got to go back and you do the second the second viewing and you realize oh there's so many layers to this. One of the things that stuck out immediately upon the second watch was the song Stardust. You know the song sort of focuses on someone who's sort of empty inside, and I think that's that's really designed around Nicolas Cage's character from from the fact that it's by an artist King Crimson and and the color red plays a pretty important role through the film. And the idea of sort of a darkness inside or dead inside. And I think that, that sort of sets the tone for, for Red Miller. Again, another callback to the color red. His character and, and his uh, character art throughout the story. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of red in this movie, isn't there? I've got it playing right now uh, in, in silent. Yeah. And it's, you're right, there's lots of red. It's a little purple at this point. But, right. Well, well, well there's, an, it's, there's an interesting thing that Pantos does throughout, which is that he sort of uses red as um, danger, some unrest, um, anger, obviously. And, and blue plays, plays a role as far as peacefulness. So if you watch throughout it, there's a lot of instances where when the, when the color scheme turns to red, there's an edginess to it. Yeah. And when it's in blue, it's when they're more serene. And oftentimes, there's even moments where there'll be a, a splash of red kind of across the character red, and where Mandy sits more in blue, signifying that, like, she is his peacefulness. And, and in a lot of ways, and we'll, when we get to the animated sequences later in the film, she is the being that, that calms the beast inside of him. Whereas he, he obviously has a darker past. He's obviously got some army buddies. And um, and and when when the title character passes, that rage is is let loose. Yeah, yeah. She's the only like she's the the dam blocking it. You know, she's the only thing keeping him normal. Uh, and that that was what was so surprising for me was uh, too was that there was there's really no explanation for that. It's just like right. as soon as Red Miller has a reason, 
<laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Like, it's like you see this uh, this 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 country guy, you know, that's just kind of like a quiet man, and then like all of a sudden he's like, you know, chugging what like tequila or something straight from the bottle, and, like screaming, yeah, exactly. and you're just like, whoa, who's this guy? And uh, oh, that's who he really is, you know? And uh, right, he's, he's coming him. out. Yeah. yeah, there's a little there's a little bit of a of a Beauty and the Beast, a little bit of a the werewolf or. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in, in um, Nick Cage's character. And, you know, I feel like over the last few years, maybe since adaptation, sometime a little bit after that, Nick, people kind of forgot how great an actor Nick Cage is and, and maybe have sort of, he's become more of a meme than he has been a, a really super talented actor, not by his own yeah. fault, but just as a perception. I think people have looked back at some of his earlier projects and said he overacts or he's just, just too crazy. But... I watched an interview with him where he goes through some of his most memorable roles. And when you understand his his mindset behind the characters, especially his love of like German expressionist and trying to bring a more avant-garde sensibility to his acting to mainstream films, it's actually really brilliant. Oh, yeah. Uh, in the same kind of transformation thing, I'm, I'm reminded once again of Wild at Heart where you know you're introduced to uh, Sailor. I think Sailor, right? And he's yeah. just this like he's this cool like kind of you know kind of rockabilly kid that's got the you know this really cool style and uh, you know you, you, he just looks like such a a cool collected guy until somebody messes with his girl and then you watch him just cave a man's head in on the stairs, right? You know, with killing him with his bare hands, and it's just kind of this like. Like, of course, that's him. But, like, at the yeah. same time, where did that come from, you know? Well, so that's it. And, and you know, uh, initially, there, Panos wanted Nick Cage to play the role of Jeremiah. Yeah. And um, and Nick Cage turned it down. He said, I, I want to play Red. And, and I think that was – his instincts were, were dead on. Um, oh, yeah. Nick, Nick, Nick Cage has always had the ability to play – to go from a very laissez-faire, dead-inside place to a wild man. Like yes. on, on, and, and in a way that, yes, sometimes seems extreme, but really, if you're losing your mind, is it not extreme? If you're having a mental breakdown, it's not this nice, smooth transition. It's, it's a switch, and he has that, and he's got that ability to bring some believability to it, uh, as well as sort of showing the, the, the torture and the horror and the, the anguish that he's experiencing from Mandy getting killed. Well, it's, it's – uh... You know, there's something very relatable in there that, in that that way that he just kind of what you're you're describing as a mental breakdown. I think it's more like a um, a surrender. It's yeah. like he, you know, he, whatever is going on in the beginning of this film, whoever he is, this lumberjack, this this husband, uh, you know, he doesn't look good at it. He looks nervous. Right. He looks – it's strange and you can – Definitely you can, uncomfortable. Yeah, and who hasn't been in that kind of relationship where you're putting in all this effort, you know, trying to be this person that you think your partner wants and, and then when it, when it ends, there's this like – for whatever reason, there, you know, a lot of guys can relate to this. There's this like kind of anger. It's like, ah, I did things right and it's – and, I'm, and I, things are worse now, you know? Yeah, And yeah. So, so here he is. He's, he's worked so hard. He's built this life with this wonderful woman and – now he's worse off than he started and it's like you know and it's not any fault of his own but it's it's not like it's a breakup or a divorce it's it's even worse i mean like right. someone you know someone else came into our life and took her right. and like you can just see that like that, that 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 point where it's 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 just like why did i even try you know like i, I mean 
man, and the, the fact that they, as a sculptor, as a bronze sculptor, I got to tell you how cool it was for me watching him, you know, cast his own weapon. That was right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, but it's, it's funny like, because you know, right it, away, he's, oh, sorry, but he, he's into the foundry and he's like making, you know, it's just like he's just, you know, so naturally, like he takes to it because it's like, that guy in the beginning, that was the hard work. That was the hard right. thing for him to do. And it's like, I give up. I'm just going to go savage. Yeah. I'm just going to be the barbarian right. that I am. Right. So, you know, one of the things I'm watching this film and watching interviews with the director was he talked about starting with a core story and then like a sculptor sort of adding to it, you know, and shaping it as you add pieces of clay to this project. And um, there are a lot of layers to this wow. from, from, from the musical, from the musical uh, choices to the, obviously the color schemes. But at, at the core of it is a story about a man who, who has everything taken away and, um, and a story of, of the danger of ego, I think, to some degree, plays a, lot, a large role in this. But, you know, we get, we get you know, the f- whole first act is very serene. There's, there's the sense of danger, certainly when Jeremiah first sees Mandy as she's walking along the side of the road. Yep. And, and you, can, you, can, you know what's about to happen. And I think the fuchsia color scheme is fantastic because it's not straight red. It's not quite it's, – it's, it's purposefully unsettling. To have this mix of colors, right? Yeah. You have the mix. You have the mix of danger represented by Jeremiah and the red, the reddish orange color of the was it the, the the children of the golden dawn? I think is their name. Oh uh, yeah, I think so. A, a, with with the serene, calm blue of Mandy, right? And so you have this blend of it, and that blend creates this color scheme that you're just not used to. You know, like other films do, lighting in interesting ways, but. But that one really unsettles you because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't need to make sense. Like the whole screen just goes fuchsia. Yeah. And it, and it catches your attention. So, you know, Jeremiah sets his eyes on Mandy and he sets his guys to go and awaken these these mutant biker dudes. Yeah. I don't even know if they're mutants. I, I, that's one of the things that, that, that this film, you know, it walks the line on. is like, is it true horror? Like, are they demons? No. You could certainly you could certainly look at them that way, but like the way I look at them, they're just really fucked up guys that are just so drugged out that they're they're not really human anymore. They're ids, you know, they're the part of the human psyche that is just pure id, and they're surviving on drugs and um and adrenaline and possible and just, cannibalism. Possible, yeah, potential, yeah. Or no, I'm pretty sure that's confirmed, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so so you know he, they call them in a, in a really interesting way, right? It, feels almost like you're calling the four horsemen of apocalypse and um they set them to go capture mandy and there's this great scene where you especially once you catch on to how the lighting works and what it represents where um mandy and red are in bed together and you got the nice calm blue that you've seen with them together yeah and then and then the biker guys show up and they capture them and and instead of swapping to red which would be the more obvious color scheme they stay on the blue but it flickers right yeah 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 it flickers and flickers until it goes to black. And, and I don't know. I have to go back and watch for a third time. But I don't know that we ever get back to blue after that. I think after that point, you're always in reds and oranges and fuchsias, if not straight lighting. And, and that blue from that point kind of dies out. And it's an interesting choice, right? Like you see the two of them staring at each other. And, and that's really the last time they are able to look into each other's eyes until, until Nick Cage's character is the one who's knocked out. And then, and then the blue is done. And, and it's, it's done from that point on. Oh wow! Yeah, it's really that's, that's pretty that's smart. Some cool stuff in it. Yeah, some really cool stuff in it all the way through. So you know, then you get to this interesting scene where uh, Mandy is is drugged at the behest of Jeremiah, and he's trying to convince her to to be with him while playing. He's a failed 
what is it like a hippie singer songwriter type who who's only quote, yeah unquote, he, hit hit song is about himself thinks he's Donovan or something he's he's um yeah he's a ridiculous man I I mean that the, the even the record he puts on looks self published uh, right yeah he's he's a failed artist and and that's you know one of the things that's kind of that really uh, I loved about Mandy is like these characters you know just dealing with the like the the aspect of character like you know right. like character as you would say like that man has character like these guys have none like all like the only guy that really is like a real person is red uh right. like the the mutant bikers that you're talking about you know they wear these crazy costumes they're i mean they're out of their minds on drugs what what's what does red call them a snowflake right. he sees right. right through this these are these are just weirdos and druggies and hippies and failures and just losers you know but right. they're the, right. but they're you know they're not playing by the rules and like he tried and and so uh that's why he he just kind of is able to just you know a real barbarian you know a real yeah, warrior exactly. warrior really he just he's able to just tear through them all because it's like they're they're not what they are like you know a real if if those biker guys were really what they thought they were, they wouldn't need like, the costumes. They wouldn't need right, all that. Exactly. Like uh, well, if Jeremiah was really what he thought he was, he wouldn't need the cult. You know, he wouldn't. He, right. Like the he would have been a famous musician. You know, but he's not. He's the song is horrible. I mean, I know people who right. like it. <laughs> I do. <laughs> but well, that's awesome. It is. It is ridiculous. Like who would well, listen it, to that? It's interesting because you know you you pointed out rightfully at the beginning that this draws some inspiration from from those old barbarian comics, right? Like Conan and, and things of that nature. And um, if Red represents the, the sort of the savage man, right? The unleashed animalistic savage man, um, in, in a lot of ways, Jeremiah represents the, the evil wizard, which is actually alluded to in a, in a book that um, Mandy is reading. He, he right? does and he doesn't. Because he, he, maybe he, yes, he does represent that in the, in, in the sense that it's a barbarian quest. Mm-hmm. But he's also not that. Like right. that's no, how he. Fake. I mean, that's how he sees himself. He's a fake. That's a fraud. That's how he sees himself. Like he has right. all their little knives have special magic names. Every exactly. little thing, but it's just bullshit. All of it's bullshit. Right. I mean, the fact that he has to to make himself look so impressive, he has to you know drug this poor girl so she's out of her mind. To, you know, because he, he can't let her just see him. You know, he's got to like. Get her, get all the conditions just right, so that you know yeah. his, his song's playing, and he's wearing his favorite robe, and his cult is all around him, and she's you know out of her mind on psychedelics, so everything looks beautiful to her, and uh, he's got you know, and it doesn't work. Well, because, I think it's really telling that when when he that that's interesting that you bring up the robe because that robe looks like a wizard's robe. Oh yeah, you know, and I think that it's really telling that in the moment where he takes the robe off. And he's he's literally, or I guess he opens it, right? He's literally exposed to her. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> and she sees through it, both both literally and figuratively. She just laughs at him because yeah. she sees him. He's he's literally naked in front of her, but in her eyes he's naked because the facade has fallen away, and all she sees is this middle aged man standing pathetically in front of her. Oh yeah. And and props to. To uh, uh, Linus for for going all in there. I I read a, I saw an interview with him where he was hesitant to go naked. I guess the original scene has him supposed to be masturbating in front of her, and yeah. um, well, he, kinda, sort of he, he kind of does. He uh, kind of rubs the sides. Yeah, yeah he kind of gives he a gets bit a little of it. little frisky there. Yeah, at one but point. but but I'm actually glad they pulled it back a little bit. Oh well, yeah, nobody wants to see that. Yeah. 
Well, not only that, but oh, I think it right. would have distracted. I think it would, I think it would have also distracted from from the point of vulnerability. Like he's literally naked in front of her, and she sees through the facade, and he, she shatters his ego completely. Oh, and yeah. from from that moment on, you realize you're right. He's not a wizard that he makes him out to be. You know, the long the long blonde hair and the wizard robe and the the magician cult around him or whatever they you know their fancy name with all their relics none of it means anything he's just a failed middle-aged guy he's a loser yeah and and unfortunately her vision is um her downfall and he in in typical um santimonious manner burns her at this sort of at the stake he burns her out of, in a bag yeah while, while mandy watches or while red watches um in horror yeah he's got to burn the truth you know she's because I mean, what is mandy a right. very talented illustrator an artist, exactly. a visionary. Some, I mean, she's just, you know, and, and she's a normal person. She's not trying to be famous. She's just making cool art, you know, at their house. But she sees exactly what this hack is. You know, he's an right. artist because he, he's an artist, too. And well, art, you he, know, he fancies himself one. Anyway. No, 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 Andrew. He's an artist. And that's what's mm-hmm. great. See, I'm going to tell you, man, there's lots of people are artists. doesn't mean yeah. they're good artists. You right, know what right, I'm saying? Right. And like, yeah, true. yeah. And sometimes when you meet one of these bad artists that, you know, just really believed for one reason or another that the world would just adore what they had. And, uh, you, you find some really, really sour personalities, man. Some really, sure. really bitter people with a chip on their shoulder. Cause it's like, you know, I don't know if like in Jeremiah's young life, uh, you know, in his developmental years, he, he heard yes all the time and a bunch of people, you know, but like at some point he got out there in reality and when he submitted himself, he got rejected, and uh, he has taken all these efforts to, you know, create a life where that that reality that you're a bad artist, man, like, you know, yeah. like is not gonna like come, in, you know, he's not gonna be confronted with that again. So when right, he exactly. when he when he reveals himself to Mandy, it's it's that ultimate like. Uh, you know, putting your art out there for judgment. You've got him, you know, completely exposed, naked, with his favorite song that he made playing. <laughs> right. And, you know, he's even, you know, uh, I mean, there are certain drugs, and I imagine that some of the ones they gave her that make all music sound good. And like, sure, so, sure. I, so I imagine he thought there was no way she wouldn't, that this, you know, this is gonna work. He's, he's, I'm pretty sure he's done this before. I mean, there's, oh, um, definitely. there's a very attractive young woman in his cult that, uh, you know, I, I think the audience is to assume that he probably uh, has had the same experience with. Yeah, gotten the same way, exactly. And so he is, um, you know, he, it's, he's got all his conditions right where he can get that confirmation he needs. But when instead he gets that, you know, really cold, bitter judgment from one of your peers that is actually better than you. Well, that, that's yeah. That's an interesting subtext because the the, the, the B story between Mandy and and um, Jeremiah is exactly that, right? The the artist who fancies himself better than he is, and the one with true talent, who is able to sort of see through that, yeah, and and criticize him in a way that he just simply can't deal with, and and in some ways, um, you know, Red is an artist in his own right, like you brought up earlier. Like he goes to the founder and he fastens that really rad sort of axe you know, bow staff type deal. Yeah. Um, it's just, his art is, has been subdued for a long time because his art is violence. And, and at, at Mandy's death, that, that artist is a leash. And, and we brought up earlier the scene of him in the bathroom where he's chugging the tequila or the vodka or whatever it is that he's just having a complete and total surrender to. 
Um, and it's great because, again, you said earlier, like, Nick Cage is okay with not looking cool all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, there's nothing cool about a guy with, like, a tiger shirt, like, uh, the, the baseball, you know, quarter sleeve shirt. Yeah. The quarter sleeve shirt. And tidy nope. whiteies. Yeah, no pants. Yeah. No pants and <laughs> yeah. just, just disheveled hair and just having a complete and total breakdown. Yeah, just alternating between crying, drinking, and screaming. <laughs> um, but what's unleashed, what's unleashed from there and on is, is his true self. You know, it's, it's his version of, the, of the, um, it being released and, and on a quest, you know, for revenge. To, to whatever means that end, gets to. Yeah. So, um, yeah, from then on, it, it, it's, it, it falls pretty solidly into a revenge film. You know, he starts going through the, the pact one by one, not so different than, say, the, the Crow, right? Until he gets to Jeremiah and they have their final confrontation. Oh, yeah. I thought, I thought one of the things about this film that's great is that it's, it's not trying to revolutionize um, revenge films from the standpoint of story. Like, it's pretty straightforward, right? Yeah. Yeah, happy couple, one of them dies. I mean, this is essentially the, the plot to Hard to Kill, you know, with Steven Seagal in some ways, right? <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, but, everybody's but, still – I mean, when are people going to stop stealing from Hard to Kill? I mean, <laughs> you know, oh, it's been but, like 20 years now. Come on, guys. Write a, write, but, write a movie that's but, not Hard to Kill. But I'll tell you something. Um, he, what he does well, – this and, and as far as, as what I enjoyed it, I loved it. And I loved it because he takes a story that we're familiar with and he adds elements to it to makes it feel fresh. It's got a, it's, it, he, and it doesn't have to follow the rules so succinctly. It doesn't, he doesn't strive to make sense, you know, because the story still works. Yeah. Like he doesn't really have to explain. There's a scene where uh, uh, the, the, the chemist, you know, the, who's making all this drug has a tiger and he releases the tiger and it cuts away to a scene of the, the tiger sort of roaring in the, against the weird back uh, backdrop sky yeah you don't have to explain those things like i think we get it and it's okay that it's weird no i i think there's something more to that though like i mean who hasn't known that drug dealer you know that pot dealer with all the exotic pets you know you go to buy weed from him and you gotta check out his new uh you know uh pygmy uh ferret or you know (laughs) and i think we're supposed to get the sense that this guy is like the supreme lsd creator so of course he's his exotic pet isn't an iguana or like some desert snake it's a tiger (laughs) but i think a lot of filmmakers would shy away from that because they they would be afraid the audience wouldn't get it i think where panos really succeeds is that he doesn't he doesn't dumb it down for the audience right you know he lets him in on he lets him in on the fact this is a, a piece of art you know, there was, I think there's been a long, a long stretch of time where films for the most part have tried to play it very realistic. Yeah. They've, they've tried to really Nolanize everything. And I love Christopher Nolan, but that doesn't work for every genre. And I don't think every genre needs to be so rooted in reality that, that it feels like it could be happening outside on your street. I think there's, there's a room for avant-garde to exist in film. And I, it feels like in this, in the late seventies and the eighties, more directors and more filmmakers took chances in that way. And maybe we're seeing a little bit of a revival of that now. Um, but I really appreciate that. I appreciate him taking what would otherwise be just – there's a lot of there's a lot of horror thriller films out there that do this revenge plot. Uh-huh. He found a way to make it really interesting and to say, let's go on this ride together. Let's not worry if everything, quote, unquote, makes sense. It will in the context of everything, right? Oh, yeah. It, it, it. It, it will, it'll all, yeah, it will all yeah. fit in nicely. 
let's just go on this ride together. Just buy in and, and immerse yourself. And um, that this film does it in a way that, that a lot of films don't quite get to. Uh, you know, while while you're on the subject of that drug, uh, the uh, the LSD guy, the wizard that you're, you know, that that he goes yeah. to visit. Uh, that I really appreciated that character because that that guy kind of shows like he almost is like the magical guy that Jeremiah thinks he is. You know, he's yeah, right. he he really has created something. And I liked one of the things I liked about that is he, you know, unlike all the other people that Red encounters on his journey, he does not get destroyed. Like no. Red's just he's just there to get some information, and um, as soon as he gets it, you know, there's this mutual respect between the two of them. What does he call him? A, a Jovan warrior. Uh, yeah, has entered my my presence or something. Uh, they they've got this understanding of each other, and what's amazing is is in that scene, both characters are out of their mind on psychedelic drugs by this time, right? And they they're almost speaking hmm. telepathically to each other, right? And it's it, 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 Panos is so smart that he like he's not gonna let this movie go somewhere that like it's oh yes definitely something paranormal is happening like right. he's not going to do that so it's like he walks he walks either, the line yeah so either they are speaking telepathically to each other or they both think they are <laughs> right <laughs> but either way the scene works right i mean yeah. you could have just as easily had them both stop talking and let the dialogue keep playing yeah and, and i'd have bought it i'd have bought into that i'd have been down with it but he he doesn't he just sort of alters the voices in a way, and and they and they both talk, or or I guess it's really most of the chemist that's talking. Yeah, yeah. You know, the chemist is talking in a way that's so slow, and and he's not giving so much movement that it feels like it could almost. If he stopped his lips, the you you would feel comfortable with the message continuing to play out. You know. Oh yeah. When, um, when he says to uh, Red, when he says he says something like how like no, you're right, and then that's when he releases the tiger because yeah, it's like he. He hears something from him at that point, which I, I guess is something kind of like that tiger shouldn't be in a cage. Right. You you know, that, that, that's not right. And But Red doesn't say it, and we don't sense it. But then when he, he says, no, you're right, that's when you realize like he he has kind of sensed something. And, and there is this kind of like uh, – it's it's either it's a heightened sensitivity or something when you're on psychedelic drugs. Uh, and, and, and some of these guys that, you know – like I'm not trying to promote the use of psychedelic drugs, but like I have met people that have so much experience with mm-hmm. that kind of thing that it is a whole different thing for them when they do it. And like well, I, I get the sense that you know, with this guy being the creator of this incredibly powerful LSD, like he is kind of either he believes it or he actually has this kind of like heightened sense of uh, empathy, mm-hmm. where you know it. Red doesn't have to say anything about the tiger, but like he can just sense his distaste for the um, imprisonment of this animal. Well, it's I mean, basically it, that's what it is. It's a prisoner of well, this man. Well, also it, it's it's essentially representative of him, right? Uh. I mean, it's 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 not even. I mean, you know, through most of the movie up until about the time that that um, he's released, in fact, so to speak, from his cage, um, through though not the way he wanted to be released from it. I'm sure you know Red wears the tiger shirt. You know, he wears the shirt with the tiger on it up into the up, up through the bathroom scene. Oh yeah. And then it's not until um, he he's sort of unleashed from his cage, right? The cage of normalcy, the the cage of peace. Maybe you can make the argument that in in a lot of ways he was a, a docile caged animal. Yeah. Um, that he changes out of that and he's released, right? So that when so he when he sees the tiger and maybe through his eyes or maybe through telepathic means or maybe just through like empathy. 
Red is that tiger that was that really didn't never belonged pacified in a cage, right? He 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 was released. He needed to be released. And um I think there's a piece of animation a little bit later on where it's representative of Mandy sort of soothing what is obviously represented by or Nick Cage is represented by this sort of tiger man, you know, with a bunch of cuts and stab wounds and she's sort of stroking him and, and comforting him. You yeah, know? And that's right. uh yeah, and so even though by this point Red has killed the bikers and he's on the psychedelics, um, he, his main objective was the Colt. And when the Tigers released, you know, and, and um, Nick Cage is able to get his information from the chemist played by brilliantly by Richard Brake, you know, now he is unleashed as well to go do what he's meant to do. Yeah, uh, that's a good, good idea. Good comparison there. Yeah. Yeah, so it's 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 great. I mean, all the way through, I think there's, they do some really interesting things. They don't shy away from being cool, you know, um, and they do it in a way that you don't. It, it looks it looks impressive. It's very visually stimulating, like the the chainsaw fight scene. Yeah, it's very it's very, it's very stimulating. But you don't question you don't question that the art that the filmmaker just sat around and be like, you know, what would be cool. What if we just did this? You know, like you sort of buy into it because it kind of makes sense. Like Red has a history wielding a chainsaw so when he sees when he sees one there's a comfort level to that right yeah it makes sense i didn't even think about that like that's that's his like tool for his job yeah (laughs) so naturally he's just like oh good you're here too now it's a little it's a little absurdist when the when the bad guy pulls out a uh the obviously the phallic what is it like a four foot chainsaw yeah like the super chainsaw right (laughs) But, Uh, but it but it all ties in really neatly. You buy like, hey, he saw he sees this thing that he is comfortable with in his hands, you know, yeah. and and he's and in that moment he decides I'll use this because this thing is this is what I do, um, you know. Before he reyields the the axe that he made, it's great. I, I love this film. I think it does a lot of really great things. I think it's it's the first time in a while that I've seen like abs- like avant garde absurdist horror really get the praise that it deserves. I oh, yeah. think a lot of I think like I said earlier, a lot of filmmakers in the in the late seventies and the eighties took chances, but you haven't really seen that too too much lately. And and the times that you have seen it, they they haven't always fared so well. I mean, I can think back as far as like Kevin Smith's Tusk. I think is a good example of taking a shot at avant garde horror and it <laughs> maybe not you know, maybe not finding its audience or, or at least a widespread audience or at least the the, the claim that it probably deserved. I love that movie also. Do you really? Okay. Yeah, you know I. I <laughs> The first time I watched it, the first time I watched Tusk, I thought, huh, all right. <laughs> that's about right. Yeah, that's, that's a good review of Tusk. Tusk, and then, huh, all right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then, you know, I watched it a second time, and there's there's a few editorial changes I wish it would have made. Uh-huh. Uh, just a little bit of tightening, maybe just like a little bit of a helping hand to say, like, uh, you could just, I mean, not even much, right? Just a little bit. But... It's fucking weird, and yeah. and it doesn't apologize for being weird. And and why can't things be weird? Why can't it be surreal and strange? Because life's weird and strange, right? Why does everything have to be so like, sent like sanitized and and grim and gritty? You know? Yeah, there were a lot a lot of risks were taken with Tusk, and you're right. That is um, respectable. Yeah. Um, I, like uh, I, I love the walrus suit. Yeah, that, and that, okay. Uh, I mean, I I don't know. Uh, it kind of had that like 
human centipede kind of thing where it's sort of like, oh, you can, you know, this this is something you can do that is real and it's not like uh like how would you actually turn a person into that it it just seems like sure you know with, with is he just kind of inside the suit but then it's also sort of stitched to him or is it like right i don't well, know see, what we're supposed to see there but but and i think this is the difference between a film like panos's film uh mandy and kevin smith's tusk is one you know, Panos had already built up a little bit of a cult following with Behind the Black Rainbow. Yeah, people great kinda knew what to ex- Yeah, people kind of knew what to expect with him. Whereas, obviously, Kevin Smith's background is more heartfelt dick and fart jokes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, <laughs> even 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 with Red State kind of oh, setting the tone. Loved Red State. Loved yeah, I think even with that setting the tone, I think it was just was still like a big leap for people to accept. But, you know, there are plenty of things about Mandy that you could be like, how does that work? But you don't, because you're immersed into it immediately, right? Yeah. And um, and you know, you know, and and I think kind of Tusk took it on the on the chin a little bit and didn't really fare that well. Um, I think the new Suspiria is another example of a film that that went for more of an avant-garde feel and maybe didn't do so great, didn't quite find its audience yet. Um, but with Mandy, I think that it's a simple enough concept that we can all get behind and understand. That we're that the audience was more okay with some of the risk that it took, and oh, yeah. and, and some of the visual choices that it took, and uh, and I think it's real it's real anchored by by Nick Cage's performance. I mean the scene at the very end after he he kills Jeremiah, and um, he's in the car and he's just driving to who knows where. Like where does this guy go from here? Like his yeah. his quest is over. Like what, what? There's nothing left for him at this point, and he and he. He turns and he sees Mandy. And I think it's like the – I'm trying to remember. I think she's still in red. She's not in blue anymore because because now she's obsession, right? She's no longer the peaceful element in his life. Now she's obsession. So she's she's glowed in, in this, that fuchsia red color. But then it cuts back to Nick Cage and he's giving like classic Cage, weird expressionistic facial, like that weird smile, bug eyes, like yeah. blood down his face. You know, like he, she no longer represents peace. Like that's not a look of peace. That's a look of obsession and insanity. And oh, so yeah. in a lot of ways, even though it's, it's a, I guess it's a happy ending kind of, it's really a um, bittersweet ending because this, this man's, this man's peacefulness has been destroyed and, and he's essentially now an, another wild animal released into the wild. Yeah. I don't think, I mean, I don't even see it as a happy ending or, or a, any, any kind of ending. I think it just, it, it is an ending. It's that kind of like it's over kind of thing, you know, like it's done and where, you know, the quest has ended. That's it. You know, there's no more, uh, uh, it's, it's like a relief, like, right. Like this marathon has ended, you know, of, of revenge and, and, and and there's, was there justice? I mean, it's not like, you know, the way Mandy died was horrible and it's not like something equally terrible was done to Jeremiah. He just sort of gets his head crushed, you know, and, kind yeah. of gets embarrassed a little bit but you know he has to offer yeah. some uh he, he says some very humiliating things you know make some offers uh, yeah in the end there to try, try to save his life well and and i think uh, i think that I, i'm glad that they resisted a an epic showdown yeah you know well, you didn't uh, need to. And, yeah. yeah you didn't need to and and, and jeremiah is too pathetic for that exactly you know there's like nothing the to the, the guy He's just he's just a a uh you know a, a whiny shriveling you know joke of a man and and has no real ability. 
he doesn't he doesn't get any offense in the whole time through. Yeah. And um, I actually was wrong. There is one other scene that has the blue light with Mandy, and that's on her um, her ash skull. Oh. Okay. You know when when he, when he goes to her, it, it's cast in it's cast in um, in blue light, and then it literally blows away into the wind. You know. Yeah. And he's sitting there staring at it. It's literally like it crumbles to just dust and is gone. Uh, just little, lots of little things like that, and maybe some of them are a little on the head, but, but they really drive home the point that there's there's a creative brushstroke that can make a, a relatively normal story that you're used to be really intriguing and fresh and interesting. Well, you know, uh, you were talking about some of the, you know, some of the risks that Panos takes in, in these films, and um, you brought up the chainsaw fight, and like mm-hmm. there. Uh, something that I I noticed in his first film, and, and I guess his only other film, uh, in yeah. Beyond the Black Rainbow, when he, um, you know, because he kind of presents, you get taken into these worlds with him where you kind of start start to trust that you're in some kind of like that this is going to be one of those movies that really leaves you with something that you're gonna you know like a mm-hmm. like you're gonna learn something you know, but he does these things to remind you that you're just watching a horror film, you know, beyond right. the black rainbow was the same way. You know, it was like touching on like, uh, you know, psychedelic experiences, alternate realities, you know, mind powers, all of, all of these wild things, but it pretty much ends with like a classic horror chase sequence, you know, right. <laughs> like a monster chasing a girl, you know? And, uh, same with, uh, Mandy where like, if you were telling someone about this, this film and, you know, it's so rich artistically and, uh, you know, the quality of it's so amazing and there's a chainsaw fight, you know, it just kind yeah, of like, yeah. okay. Yeah, chainsaw yeah. fight. Yeah. No yeah. Go. yeah. This one guy's got this super long chainsaw. It's totally awesome. You know, yeah. and it's cause he, he wants you to remind you that like, you know, don't, don't come to those movies with that, you know, come for a horror film and appreciate those higher level things that are going to be added to it. But don't, right. don't, you know, that's not what I'm about. That's not what we're doing. We're having fun. We're having yeah. a good time. And like, both films really pull that off well like where it's just in the end you're like i mean beyond the black rainbow also took place in the 80s now i think about it and in the end you're just kind of like that was you know that that was almost kind of like just like an 80s horror movie right like just done really well yeah like uh kind of like the you know what what a film like sleepaway camp might aspire to uh become you know if it if it had that foresight you know (laughs) or like what panos does i feel like is he yes he looks back and he takes that aesthetic because he clearly loves it but he 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 executes it maybe better than the originals you know he pushes it forward and he makes it feel interesting and he and he breaks some rules and and hopefully opens the door for more people to break rules and and try to be a little bit more avant-garde and absurdist and and not paint so neatly in the lines. Yeah, he's the he he's kind of um kind of like a a more avant-garde John Carpenter. Like he's yeah, like, like John Carpenter at, at, at his you know in his heyday and in, in his um uh you know the height of his his careers, you know, he he or he uh the way the way that he uses music, uh the, the music's so important to the films. Right. Uh, that was one of the things that when we, you know, years ago when we watched that Beyond the Black Rainbow um, trailer, and uh, it was just this like heavy synth music playing over right. the trailer with this uh, disembodied voice, you know, talking about some crazy like 
you know, mental concept and, the, and these wild visuals. And it was like a music video in a trailer. It was so cool. Was that, was that Johan Johannesson as well? Uh, I don't know who that is. Uh, he he was the he was the uh, composer for uh, Mandy. Uh-oh. Not sure if he worked on, but I but um, research. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you're right, you're right. It like it sets the tone in the same way that John Carpenter did. But but unlike um, a lot of movies now, it feels like they they aim to make a cool soundtrack. Yeah. You know, versus like you're right. Jo- that John Carpenter composed most of his own music. And he did it in a way that it just felt like you could never separate those two things. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. They're so integral to the to the to the tone and the immersion into this world. And I, I think you know, there's a lot to be said about the heavy heavy metal nature of this. Yeah, yeah. Car- Carpenter's. I didn't. It's kind of crazy because I've always loved John Carpenter movies, and it's not that I don't pay attention to the soundtrack so much. It's just that mm-hmm. like when a movie's got a really good soundtrack that works with it, you know, right. uh, it, you, you don't really even notice it. It's just, I mean, when Carpenter's playing, you know, when, he, when he's composing for his films, mm-hmm. uh, he is just straight up like connecting to your emotional center and like guiding you into these scenes. Right. And, uh, it wasn't until he started putting out, um, his, uh, his albums, uh, what are they? Uh, lost sounds. What is it? What is that? Uh, um, yeah, something to that effect. Yeah, it wasn't until I started putting those out that I, I realized, you know, I, I was like, oh, cool, John Carpenter, I love his movies, he put on an album, and I'm listening to Lost Themes, and I'm listening Lost to Lost Themes. Themes, and it's like, and then I got Lost Themes too, and those are, I'm going to say, you got to get those on vinyl too, you really want to, oh, yeah. but uh, it wasn't until I started listening to those that I realized, like, wait a minute, this is, like, I feel like I'm in a John Carpenter movie right now, it's like these, right. this guy, it's not like, yeah, it, it wasn't like, um, Lost Themes was not like a detour or, or like him composing pop music. It was like, no, uh, you, you, you get a, you start to understand like what he's doing with music and with sound and, and you know, why there's such a, there's, it's, it's, uh, what I'm trying to say is like, there's, when you listen to those albums, there's like so much that it comes with it where, you see, you know, some rainy city street with like guys having a shootout. You know, you see some like, uh, you know, the 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 science lab and the thing, you know, out there in the middle of the snowfields. Uh, all of these, you know, visuals start coming into your head because the way he's able to, you know, merge sound with uh, mm-hmm. with visual uh, to create that scene. And uh, I think that happens a lot with Panos. I think it's well, yeah. it's going to well, take a lot more watches before I really start to get that like, you know. That, that that association built right but well uh, there's 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 a strong filmmaking is able to take main elements of film separate them out and you still get a sense of the story right so if you like one of the things that carpenter does great and what what panos has done great is if you just take their score and you just listen to it turn all the lights off and listen to the score it, it will take you through the same emotional journey that if you took the movie and you just watch the visuals, it should take you through. Oh, yeah. Right? And in the same way, if you read the script, it will take you, you know, like you could separate dialogue and script and visual and audio. You could separate them into three separate pieces. You could watch them or, or absorb them all separately from each other, and they should take you through the same path, you know? And they yeah. should take you to the same natural conclusion. And uh, for better or for worse, a lot of films nowadays either, you know, the, some of them do a great job of creating kick-ass soundtracks like if you listen to a, a movie like baby driver for example uh-huh. 
a lot of the tunes that they pick, they add to the story. But if you just listen to that soundtrack, it's not taking you on the same journey, you know. Right. Um, or you go the other direction, you go like the Marvel film route where the music is just kind of there to fill dead space. But again, it doesn't really take you through the same journey. And and I think what he was able to do and, and do in some really interesting ways was take sort of this sort of 80s heavy metal mixed with synth sound and and put you in with the characters that, with what they're going through. And I love the revival of heavy metal. And I say heavy metal, not metal or thrash. I mean like that era when it was just called heavy metal and it was heavy metal magazine and it was this cool inclusion of Germanic Viking Valkyrie Norse <laughs> sort of vibe, you know? Yeah, man. Like bring all that stuff back. Like it doesn't make, does it really make sense that he creates this crazy looking over the top stylized axe? I don't know. I mean, maybe. I mean, it does if he's if he's an art if he's representing yeah, exactly. a different kind of artist, right? Uh, even if it's a uh, very heavy and hard to wield, solid steel, you know, just unusual looking, probably not very effective in battle uh, art piece. Uh, right. You know, that's right. what we need because it's, you know, and maybe it does work. Maybe it even works uh, uh, narratively in that. Uh, it's scary as hell to see that thing. Right. And I think and, he yielded appropriately. You know, they didn't bring a stunt guy in to do a, country, a bunch of crazy stylized fight scenes. Like he, he yeah. wields it like a, he wields it like a middle-aged man wielding this overly heavy battle axe. Yeah. And it yeah. works brilliantly. Yeah. And in contrast to the, the, you know, kind of gaudy spike covered leather uniforms of the, um, the, the biker gang. Uh, do they have a name in that film? It's what, the, what? No, they're like uh, Demon Riders or... Um, Something. What do they call he, them? Yeah, he, he's got some name. He's definitely... Um, the, uh, he's got some sort of name for them, you're right. But, but you know, it, it allows itself... Uh, Bill Duke the, the calls black, them something. The Black Skulls. It's the Black Skulls. Oh, the Black Skulls. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, the Black Skulls. Yeah, even that. Even that... Stu- I mean, the Black Skulls, you know, and they've got their... I mean, they're just... Posers, man. <laughs> All right. Of them are. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Down to, from the Black Skulls down to the. Uh, Children of the New Dawn, you know, uh, how they all act like they've really accomplished something and they're so proud of themselves when they burn this harmless woman, you know, uh, the Black Skulls living there, you know, what are they watching porno in their crappy house where they all live together, you know, in the woods. I mean, losers, all losers when you really get down, when you break out and, and, you know, just like I said, like that, I was, I was kind of, it was awesome. It's such an awesome line. It was weird and kind of felt out of place uh, for a moment until it hits you when he, he says, uh, you're such a ruthless snowflake. Yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. It's, it's like, he's, he's, what, what actual dangerous person, you know, really dangerous, dangerous to like someone that, you know, a warrior like Red Miller would, would need all that, would do right. all that. Like they're nothing. Well, it's funny. You could you could look at the the three sort of um, the three crews, so to speak, that that exist. Where you have the children of the of the new dawn, you have Red sort of as a solo act, and you've got the the Black Skulls. And if you if you think about them in terms of musical groups, right? You've got the hippie group, you know, that that sort of like flower flower child flower power vibe coming out of the 60s and 70s yeah but this and is you, but late, late to the game this is 1982 nobody's well, even yeah. interested anymore like still right. trying to do it yeah like, and then you've got these like leather clad poser metal dudes who are just way over the top all, all visual you know 
And then you got Red, who's who's you know maybe represents more of like the you know Metallica and Megadeth type guys who are coming around at this time. Iron that Maiden. were yeah Iron Maiden, just, <laughs> dudes, just dudes in shirt and jeans and just fucking the, their actions. Judas you know, Priest. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah. Um, I'm obviously, just naming, I'm just naming bands. Hmm. I like. <laughs> but but you know bands that came out that were a little bit more far less pop and circumstance and just real musicians, real artists. You know. Oh and, yeah, yeah. And Red kind of represents that. You know, he's very, he's very low maintenance. Just he throws on one little piece of armor and and he's got his axe and that's it. He's ready to go fucking shred. Well, he's also got some sort of a hunting rifle with a crossbow on it. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's a, that's a, that was another interesting choice. Was like the weaponry in this film. It it was fan. It wasn't real weaponry. It was like stuff from video games. You know. Yeah. Uh, even including the rifle. Um. Yeah, that that was that was good. That that really adds to that barbarian quest element that we're talking about. That this is not uh, just a uh, guy getting revenge in the '80s. This is like something so horrible has happened that we're going to enter an alternate kind of an alternate reality for a little while and just sort of live there. You know, uh, we're we're, uh, we're in an era now with the internet and stuff where we can you know we 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 can we we have a new vocabulary to describe people like this. You know, we hear about like incels and neckbeards mm. and nice guys and white knights you know these sort of uh these kind of uh you know i should be able you know these guys that are kind of like i should be able to get all the women but like something's wrong with society and that's why right. i can't and i i do kind of wonder if uh, panos was t- trying to kind of touch on some of that right now what's going on in our culture where we've got you know uh you know this this kind of online movement of uh of a male entitlement you know sort Mm. of like this uh uh you know it's exactly that like of uh this kind of thing where you know he 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 visions himself a uh an amazing artist and a a visionary and, and and he thinks he's you know the world should belong to him but it's it's you know he he describes taking his music to the uh record executives who turned him down and how right you know it's because they were they were you know, too stupid, or maybe they were, um, you know, under the influence of, uh, you know, evil spirits or something, sure. you know, that they weren't on the side of God like he is, you know, and it's, uh, there's something in that where, you know, right now, a, a movie like this com- uh, coming out in the, in the, you know, in this era where, you know, this is something that we're, you know, we, that people have always, we've always dealt with a society, but like where it's just where we've got, you know, words now, like, like incel and like uh, sure. you know nice guy to like you know terms for well, these th- kind of guys. I think you know a lot of films strive to send a message, and, and a lot of times they do it do it through their plot, you know, or the, the the theme of the story. And I think what what this film, what Mandy's able to do is it's able to touch on some of those topics through the characters. And I think you're right. So if you look at Jeremiah's character, he's he's a very entitled character. He feels like the system wronged him. Certainly, it's not representative of his talent because obviously his talent is more. It's just misunderstood, you know, and uh, I think that, that that's – there may be some commentary. There may be Panos's way of, of looking at a lot of people in society. Certainly, I think we touched on, on the way artists view themselves, but also the male ego in general. Yeah. To see something and feel entitled by it. Um, you know, the most creative person in this entire film is Mandy. From yeah. A, from, a, from a classical standpoint, right? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, she – so much so that maybe her art – 
is um, sooth soothsaying. You know, her art has some visions of the future. If you look at the montages of her drawing, there's a lot of flames and fire and beasts being released uh, in her art. Yeah. And um, what you sort of have her centered between is is two males sort of fighting over her. Um, and she's the more sophisticated artist of the three. And with Jeremiah, you have the very self-entitled but not very talented artist. And, and through Red, you have sort of just uh, the beast, right? The, the guy whose art is violence. But there's not a there's not a dispute over her. I mean, she is married to Red. You know, right. it's, not, it's not like two men are fighting over her. It's like one guy... You know, and, and this is the thing. I don't know if you ever look at like Reddit, and, like some of these. Um, I try not some to. Of these, <laughs> well, some of these subreddits, like like our nice guys, or our uh, you know our neckbeards, or our creepy PMs, uh, creepy private messages. You know, you see a lot of this kind of stuff where uh, women will share private messages they've gotten over the internet, and it's these guys that are like, you know, I know you're in a relationship, but like. You know, I I am so much more sophisticated, and I right. you know I'm so much I'm into better art, and like you know you must be tired of going out and getting drunk with your friends and hanging out with stupid people, and I could show you a better you know you get so many of these kind of uh, these posts about this kind of thing where these guys are like they they just see someone and they're like oh you know they don't even know this person they don't know if they're compatible with this person at all, but they know that the um, their, their appreciation for their own world and, and their own interests will translate to this person. And, and, sure. and it's they've just got to rescue this person from... And often these are women that are in happy relationships that, you know, love what they... I mean, they're, they're living their lives and they get these messages about how wrong they are about every choice they've made and if they'll mm -hmm. just go with this other guy that they don't even know, uh, how much better things will be. And it's crazy how much that theme shows up on these reddit pages over and over just you know i'm a nice guy i'm a good guy and i'm smarter and i'm into actual you know actual substance art unlike the people you're around and so let me right. take you away from your whole world from your friends and that there's a you know a very strong um similarity in jeremiah sand's behavior in this film but but great film, great characters. I think they really they really did a great job of taking us into a world that we could lose ourselves in for a little while, and not just be eye candy, but but actually a film that makes you think and has a lot of thought put into it. And again, it, one of the most difficult things uh, about filmmaking is is making the right choices. So I, I hope to see more films like this. I hope to feel, see more filmmakers take chances and people supporting them. And, and sort of giving us a little bit of a revival of true indie, which, which maybe hasn't been around for a little while, where really quality films are making really daring decisions and putting out some really great art. I hope to see more films by uh, Panos Cosmatos. I mean, dude, two films? What are you doing? Get to work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we want more. Well, yeah, exactly, exactly. But the, but the great thing is he's making, he's making um, films that are of high quality. So hopefully, um, I think someone asked him, what's next? And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I guess when he's inspired, he'll get back up and, and make another one. So um, well, that would be nice. Hopefully we'll do more of this. Let us know what you think about this podcast, what you'd like to see, what you'd like to have us talk about. And we will see you next time.